Government would still be diverting the same amount of resources from the productive sector of the economy. It's just they would be doing it, financing it with taxes instead of borrowing. So, so I don't view deficits as the problem to solve. I view excessive government spending as the problem to solve. But that's only part of the story. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. For this episode of Act in Line, we're bringing you a panel discussion from the Free Market Roadshow Grand Rapids, a recent special event that we hosted here at the Acton Institute in conjunction with the Austrian Economics Center. There is no need to describe the many problems and crises of our time, but there is a great need to look at the causes and to refute the simplified and politically opportune explanations. Only if we know exactly what the problems are and how they arose will we be able to find the right solutions. New standards have come into force in almost all areas of policy, and they are changing our lives, sometimes noticeably, sometimes surreptitiously, but often permanently. This discussion centers on the problem of unrestrained government spending and economic prosperity. The conversation features Dr. Barbara Kolm, Vice President of the Austrian Central Bank and Director of the Austrian Economic Center, Dr. Daniel Mitchell, a public policy economist based in Washington, D.C., and is moderated by Dr. David Hebert, Assistant Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Markets, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship at Aquinas College and an affiliate scholar here at the Acton Institute. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. All right. Well, thank you all so much for being here. My name is Dave Hebert. I am an associate professor of economics here in town at Aquinas College. I'm joined by Dr. Barbara Kolm, who is the vice president of the Austrian Central Bank, the director of the Austrian Economics Center, the president of the Hayek Institute, and professor at the University of Donja Gorica. Close? Donja Gorica. There we are. Uh, and to my immediate right is Dr. Daniel Mitchell. He is a public policy economist in Washington, D.C., I was a former senior fellow with the Cato Institute, the former economist with the Heritage Foundation, the former director of tax and budget policy for citizens for a sound economy. He co-founded the Center for Freedom and Prosperity, and he is a leading expert in the field on the flat tax and the importance of international tax competition. Uh, so it's wonderful to be, to be joined by such qualified people. Uh, so as uh, Dr. Barrow said, my job here is to facilitate a discussion between these two uh, incredibly intelligent people. Uh, so I want to kick us off with, with one question to kind of begin with. So we're taught in, in Econ 101, for example, uh, that spending is what drives the economy, that more spending is a good thing, that less spending would be a bad thing. So what I want to ask you both is, to what extent is this true? And I'll start with uh, Dr. Cole. Okay. Well, it depends who is spending. If it's the individual, that's wonderful. If it's, uh, to make it simple, if it's the government, it's our individual's money. And the question is, is it being spent wisely or not? Is it being spent frugal or not? And actually, is it spent for things that the citizen, that the individual needs or not? And if we have answered those questions, then we should continue. But after all, you know, Little government is always better than big government, and big government means big spending. And we don't want taxpayers' money to be used, uh, abused. The, uh, the whole argument on, beha on behalf of spending driving the economy, that's a Keynesian construct. Uh, now, oftentimes, as Barbara just said, it's in the context of, oh, the economy is not strong enough. We need government to spend money to prime the pump. But, but Keynesians also think that consumer spending is a driver of the economy. You see these reports about what happened to consumer spending last month or last quarter. Uh, and no, oh, was Black Friday strong enough uh, to help the economy? That's wrong. 
What drives the economy is income and production, which is driven by saving and investing. Consumer spending is a function of a strong economy. It's not the driver of the strong economy. You have to put the cart and the horse in the right order. Uh, and obviously, echoing what Barbara said, the idea that government's going to somehow borrow money out of the private sector and spend it, the notion that that's going to somehow give us more economic efficiency or growth is theoretically wrong, but probably more importantly and more compelling to people. Let's just look through history where we've had Keynesian so-called stimulus plans. Hoover and Roosevelt in the 30s didn't work. Uh, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter tried it with their rebates and Keynesian gimmicks uh, in the 70s, didn't work. Uh, Bill Clinton had his little stimulus in 1993. That didn't work. Uh, we had a stimulus under Bush in 2008. Didn't work. We had another one under Obama in 2009, one under, under Biden in 2021. None of these Keynesian stimulus work because you don't make yourself richer by taking money out of your right pocket and putting it in your left pocket. Let me add to that, because you just meant, and there would be plenty of examples in Europe as well, but you mentioned two things, um, saving and productivity. And I think those are the key players that we need to, uh, that we need to go back to if we want economic growth. Individuals need to be able to save, and also uh, our labor market needs to be productive. And that's what we have totally lost over the past decades at least in Europe and uh, in the U.S., I think the same thing is true. Yeah, it's always been pretty interesting to me when we see saving in the economy as viewed as non-spending. But of course, the money has to go somewhere, which means it is spent in one form or another. Can you perhaps comment on uh, the importance and I guess emphasize the importance of, I'm sorry, of saving and further investment toward developing human prosperity? Well, don't forget that saving and investing are different sides of the same coin. So when you're saving, you're investing. When you're investing, you're obviously utilizing savings. And every economic theory, this is what really gets me about the Keynesians, every economic theory, including the Keynesians, will agree that long-run growth is a function of saving and investing. Now, some theories like socialism and Marxism, they think government can do the investing. That's a little bit silly. But there's literally not an economic theory that I'm aware of that doesn't, is not based on the idea that saving and investing, setting aside some of today's income is necessary to finance tomorrow's growth. Uh, but the Keynesians say, well, that's the long run issue. Sometimes you have this short run demand, demand management uh, situation where the government has to come in and, and prime the pump. I will say there is one tiny way in which I think the Keynesians maybe get it one third of the way right. If you wind up doing a Biden-type stimulus plan and you're going to spend, one, I think it was $1.9 trillion, if you borrow a lot of that money from overseas, you can artificially goose your consumption in the short run. Now, you're doing it at the expense of having to pay off foreign bondholders in the long run. So it's sort of like thinking that you're increasing your, your family's living standards by breaking into the kid's college fund and then having a weekend in Las Vegas or something like that. So, so it doesn't make sense. But yes, in the short run, you can artificially make it seem like you're more prosperous. But that's especially the thing in, in Europe. Uh, all our politicians keep forgetting when they use Keynesian politics that in eventually, you know, the money that is spent needs to be paid back. And what we have seen these days, we are building piles and piles of public debt and uh, they will obviously not being paid by this generation nor by the next, but maybe by the third or fourth generation, if at all. And this is a huge problem. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, so would you say in, in your opinions that government spending thus far or in its current form today has perhaps gone too far down this Keynesian rabbit hole of celebrating spending at the expense of perhaps investment? My concern is not so much the Keynesian stuff, because that, that's, that's like a, a one-time injection of spending for different constituencies of Washington. Uh, and it's bad. I disagree with those things. But our much more fundamental spending problem in the United States, and for that matter in Western Europe, is just the long-run trend line of government consuming an ever-larger share of the economy. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, you have governments where literally it's more than accounting for more than 50% of GDP. We're lucky, quote unquote, in America, we're in the upper 30s as a share of GDP. Now, obviously, you had this short run coronavirus uh, spending that a lot of governments do. So you sort of want to 
hopefully that was all one-time spending, but some of it will get built in what's, into what's called the baseline. But, but here's the challenge. We're getting older as a society, and we're having fewer children as a society. And when you have entitlement programs based on a population pyramid, a few old people, lots of workers, then an even bigger generation of children, as those population uh, pyramids turn into population cylinders, living longer, fewer kids, these Ponzi schemes become fundamentally unworkable. And that's why you're seeing riots in France. Macron, who's no free market guy, he, even he realizes, well, we can't have people retiring at age 62. And of course, you know, we're in the process of adjusting our retirement age to 67, but we still have these multi-hundred trillion dollar unfunded liabilities because of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That, to me, that's the giant problem. The Keynesian spending is almost like a mosquito bite by comparison. And in addition to that, there is a basic question, what is the task of government? We've, we've gr grown the task of government, you know, from cradle to grave these days. And this is what needs to be reduced and where we critically need to ask rule of law and then what else? Security and then maybe education, maybe what else? But, you know, in the end, make people understand that it's their own money that is being spent by the government. And that's, I think, um, one of our major tasks to make sure. And coming back to the so-called pension bomb, um, pension, the pension system and the social security system has not been changed, at least not in Europe, over the last 30 years. And uh, our, as, as in the U.S., our labor market is totally dried out. There are no people who are productive. There is a life-work balance, and it's more life-life-life work balance. And that will become a, an even bigger issue. And COVID, with all the incentives that have been provided by government, has just fueled into that and added into this uh, negative spiral that we see these days. So you raise a, a point that I wanted to, to get to today. So National governments around the world, I, I don't think it's a secret to either of you or to anyone in the audience that, that governments around the world are facing persistent deficits every year and growing and mounting national debts. And, and from a, a, an accounting perspective, this is a relatively simple thing, right? If you have a debt, you either reduce spending or you increase revenue, right? And, and so I'm curious to ask, in, in your opinions, is, is the persistent debt that we see in democracies, frankly, around the world... Is this a function of too much spending, too little revenue, perhaps too much responsibility, or something else? Uh, for us, for example, in Austria, it's both ends. We have much spending, plus we uh, have more revenues by the enterprises uh, in, in form of corporate tax coming in, which is being spent, but not wisely spent. So it's both ends in Europe. My view is that deficits and debt are symptoms. The underlying disease is government spending. If we took the current size of government, which is well over $6 trillion now, annual budget in Washington, and we took that deficit and said, okay, we're going to replace all that deficit finance government with new tax finance government, would we be any better off? Government would still be diverting the same amount of resources from the productive sector of the economy. It's just they would be doing it financing it with taxes instead of borrowing. So, so I don't view deficits as the problem to solve. I view excessive government spending as the problem to solve. But that's only part of the story. The history in Washington is very, very clear. If you increase taxes, what do they do? Do they use the money for deficit reduction? They never do. They use it to finance more spending, and then the deficit winds up even higher. And I actually did the data on the European Union. I looked at the old EU-15, the Western European countries. You go back to the mid-1960s, you know, the last five years of that decade, you look at government revenue as a share of GDP and look at where it is now, basically because of the, the uh, addition of value-added taxes and things like that, the tax burden in Europe has gone up by more than 10 percentage points of GDP. What's happened to government debt during that period? It's gone up even faster. In other words, they have literally spent every single penny of this giant tax increase and then some. The idea that you're going to get politicians to balance the budget by giving them more revenue, of course that's not going to work. They are going to spend the money. 
Yeah, there has been. A, wasn't there a president in the U.S. who said one has to starve the beast? Well, that that was the that was the uh, the view of cynics of the Reagan tax cuts. They said, "Oh, Reagan wants to starve the beast." Well, I do want to starve the beast. There's no question about it. And interestingly, a lot of people say the starve the beast theory is discredited. And there was this famous Romer and Romer paper on the issue. I actually read the paper, and you know what they said. Tax cuts don't work to constrain spending because on average, within five years, the tax cuts are taken back with tax increases. So it's sort of like saying diets don't work if you're having chocolate cake every night. But wow, what a, what a revelation. And, and another good example is the Maastricht criteria in Europe, since you mentioned uh, the European uh, countries. Uh, we have broken them ever since. And actually, the Germans were the first ones to exceed, uh, exceed the 60% at uh, GDP level. And... Uh, Ever since, the French continued, and then after the big financial crisis, you have heard of all the bailouts and Greece and Spain and Portugal and the rest. And now we are still, we are having the same problem. And after COVID, it's even worse because the bailouts we have seen back then in 2012 are just many, many bailouts in contrast or in comparison to what we see after the COVID bailouts. There are additional zeros to that. It reminds me of uh, the quip, you know, do you know the difference between a trillion dollars and a billion dollars? Right, well, it's about a trillion dollars. Right? <laughs> you know, we've sort of lost sight of how big these numbers truly are. Uh, but you bring up the, the starving of the beast quote, and I, I think it's a wonderful quote. Uh, and what I want to kind of ask you both about is, do you think it's important to starve the beast of, of resources in the way that Reagan and, and his people were sort of accused of doing Or is there a different tack that could be taken, perhaps in starving the beast of responsibility and then allowing sort of the tax burden to fall from there? Actually, that was what I was going to direct the, the, the discussion to. I mean, supply-side economics allow the enterprises to provide the right solutions and not, and not have government impose the solutions or tell them to do that and try it and experiment with our money, but let enterprises provide uh, solutions to whatever issues we have coming up. And then again, um, government should, stay, should take not at least one step, but many steps back and ask, do we really have to provide this service on the one hand? And is this regulation really necessary? When this uh, two in, one out is not enough, you need... Uh, If you get one new regulation in, you need to take 10 out in order to be flexible, in order to be compatible. And that's a thing. We need our, our uh, countries, our nations need to be compatible um, because where do the new G7 stand? Who is competing with us? It's, uh, it's India, it's Asia, it's, it's economies who have less spending issues than we have. And uh, there we should look. I agree with Milton Friedman. I'm in favor of any tax cut for any reason at any time. Having said that, I just cited the rumor and rumor study on starving the beast, which it doesn't work in the long run to constrain government because governments will then come back in and raise taxes to make up for the tax cuts. I think America's founding fathers actually had the best idea. They set up a constitution, if you look at Article 1, Section 8, that delineates some very narrow and limited powers for the central government. Unfortunately, beginning in the 1930s, our Supreme Court basically fell down on the job in terms of upholding those limits on the powers of the central government in Washington. And ever since then, it's basically whatever Washington wants to do, even with the, the infamous Robert's decision on Obamacare, yes, they can force you to buy a, uh, an allegedly private product, health insurance, uh, using some vague powers of interstate commerce. And of course, the interstate commerce clause was put to stop states from having protectionism between each other. And the courts have turned it upside down and used it as just carte blanche to let the Washington do whatever it wants. Yeah, I agree. It's been, it's been a fun 10 years or so. <laughs> uh, so one question I, I have. So You mentioned this idea of, of governments going into debt, you know, buying things and taking money from one pocket and putting it in the other. And, and that's, that's great. I, I agree with those analogies. But surely we can imagine scenarios where uh, we could think instead of about taking 
money from one pocket and moving into another. Perhaps I can borrow money from the future. So, you know, I have a mortgage, for example. I am borrowing against my future stream of income. Could you think of any instances where it might make sense to borrow money from a future generation to spend today that might provide a stream of services over time that might be worth it? Well, World War II. I mean, I, I am not an anti-deficit uh, uh, phobe uh, or a debt phobe, I guess you would call it. Uh, if, if, they, if the government, uh, say the city of Grand Rapids, is borrowing some money because they're modernizing their sewage treatment plant or something like that, that's something that has benefits over a generation or two. By all means, if you want to borrow to do that, the problem with politicians is that you can't trust them to limit their borrowing to things that have genuine multi-generational benefits. Instead, they borrow money to finance current consumption. So if you're borrowing a lot of money like they are in Washington just to finance the general budget of redistribution of vote buying, that's a lot different than borrowing money for the sewage treatment plant or to win a world war. Or build a bridge. Or build it. In addition, I think we should look into the differences if it's on the local, on the regional, or on the national level, or in the case of Europe, supranational level, when, for example, uh, the Austrians pay for infrastructure pro uh, projects in, you name it, Portugal or elsewhere. And so those are the things where we actually need to look into exactly. So, Barbara, you mentioned a great distinction. You know, we're, we're talking about government in the abstract, but there are subnational, local regional, perhaps in some instances, national, supranational. There are all sorts of levels to this. Uh, and so one question I, I always kind of think about is, is, is the problem with government spending a disconnect between what the citizens want versus what they get? And I'll, I'll give an example from my own life. So I live you know, here in town in East Grand Rapids. Uh, we pay quite high property taxes relative to everyone else in this area. But for those additional taxes, there is a uh, plow that comes by and plows the sidewalks every single morning in the winter, right? So the children don't have to walk to school in the snow, right? Still uphill both ways. They still have shoes on their feet, supposedly, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, they don't have to walk in the snow like their forefathers did. Um, and that one, that millage, you know, always gets near unanimous support. So can we think about where is the pro like at what point does it become a disconnect between what citizens want and what they get. I think the more direct the democracy is, the better it is. In other words, look at the Swiss example. Here, people literally vote with their feet, move from one canton to the next one if they don't like the service that is being provided or whether snow plowing in Switzerland, which is also important, is, for example, in Canton X, way too expensive because they run it inefficiently, whereas in Canton Y, it's much cheaper, and so they, they prefer it there. Or, differently, the citizens organize it among each other and do it privately. So that's another option for Switzerland. So I think the more direct democracy is, the, more, the closer the citizen to the politician is, the easier a solution is. The bigger the distance is, say, from... Santa Barbara to Washington, Santa Barbara, California to Washington, the long distance. Um, also from my hometown, Innsbruck to Brussels is a long distance, whereas um, but those things need to be taken into consideration. So I love the Swiss model with this direct democracy and, and uh, voting with your own feet. I like the Swiss model too, in part because I trust the Swiss to be sensible. Would the direct democracy work very well in Greece? They would simply vote themselves other people's money until, as Margaret Thatcher famously said, you run out of it. I think what's really key, the thing I really like the most about the Swiss model is decentralization. It is, it is what the United States used to be. We used to have two thirds of government taking place at the state and local level in the U.S., just like they still do in Switzerland. Unfortunately, we've had more centralization and more centralization uh, starting in the 1930s. So now state and local governments, yeah, they do have some powers. And it's great to see that you have zero income tax states attracting jobs and investment from high tax states like, uh, like New York and California. Uh, but boy, would it be great to get rid of all that additional spending and an intervention by the federal government and go back to the decentralized system that our founding fathers had in mind. 
That, I think, is what makes Switzerland so successful. Plus, let's not forget this. Barbara mentioned the Maastricht criteria. Uh, these are rules governed, dictated by the European Union that allegedly limit deficits to 3% of GDP and debt to 60% of GDP. That's focusing on the symptom. The underlying problem, as I already said, is government spending. What do the Swiss have? They have something called the debt break, but it's really a spending cap. So ever since Swiss voters by almost 85% voted in that spending cap in 2001, government spending on average in Switzerland has only grown 2.2% a year. Over that same time period, in America, it's grown about three times as fast. If we had had a spending cap like the Swiss, we would not have our current fiscal problem. So controlling spending, a fiscal rule, I mean, your dissertation was on James Buchanan. I mean, James Buchanan is looking down on Switzerland right now and saying, that's what we need in the United States. There is also something that I would like to add, the te terminus technicus, uh, namely the subsidiarity principle. So if things can be done on a local level more efficiently than they should be done on a local level, there is no need to go up to the regional or the national or even the supranational level. And that's what our politicians have constantly forgotten, because they rather delegate it too far away instead of solving the issue right away with their own citizens at the same at the spot. Yeah. Can you comment on, on what has perhaps led to that? Because you would think that local politicians would want to if, zealously guard the power to do things and would prevent, you know, national governments from doing things on their behalf. But what we see the opposite in the U.S. and I know in Western Europe as well. So what what do you think has led to that? I think it's just politics. Uh, if you can get a benefit and have somebody else pay for it, and, and that's the great fiction of Washington. You collect the money through the IRS at the state level, you put it in a leaky bucket, you carry it to Washington with some spilling out, then you have a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington that chew up some of what's in the bucket, and then you send it back out to people, you know, in grants to individuals or to states in the same leaky bucket. Now, that doesn't make sense. We all lose on net. But if you're a politician in Congress, well, you're going to buy votes by convincing people you'll get more from the leaky bucket than you pay into the leaky bucket. And of course, on net, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But people live under, to cite James Buchanan again, fiscal illusion. Yeah, this is what Jim Buchanan told us. Right. Public choice, that's it, unfortunately. <laughs> so It's humane. It is, right? Uh, so Adam Smith you know, famously described a, a juggling trick among politicians of deficits, debasement, and, uh, and what was the third? I forgot the third. Deficit, debt, and debasement, I think was the third, right? So the idea, right, is if you could uh, borrow the money to spend it, right, or you could tax people, or you could simply debase the currency through inflation, right? And one question that, that kind of remains is, is given that we have sort of the power to tax, the power to spend, and the power to print money, do those three powers vested in one entity that we could call government, does that reinforce sort of the problems with each three or does it help mitigate it or what what would you say first of all i would say i would argue that monetary policy has to be kept strictly separate from fiscal policy and this has not happened over the past years at least not in europe so we have had a very strong connection between brussels and frankfurt and uh, this definitely was not the right thing Barbara has to be very polite because she is a central banker and she can't, she can't talk out of school, but I will. The European Central Bank is basically financing all of Italy's debt. That's in part what has contributed to the inflation in, the, in Europe. And we've, of course, made the same mistake in the U.S., not because we're financed. I mean, we did our big money printing, figuratively speaking, in 2020 and 2021, and initially triggered by the pandemic, central bankers panic, 2008, there's a national crisis. And so they sort of, they sort of buying up lots of government bonds, expanding their balance sheet, as it's called. I can sort of understand why they did that in March of 2020. But by September of 2020, why were they still doing it? By March of 2021, why were they still doing it? By September of 2021, why were they still doing it? And of course, eventually, expanding the balance sheet by $4 trillion caught up to them, 
that we wound up having inflation in 2022. And inflation in terms of rising consumer prices as opposed to the inflation of the money supply in the first place. And, and the European Central Bank, they expended their balance sheet by about the same amount. You can't create that much money uh, without causing problems. Now, the interesting question is why are different central banks expanding their balance sheets? In Zimbabwe and Argentina, they print money to finance their budget. In the U.S., I think we mostly make that mistake for Keynesian reasons. Let's just artificially lower interest rates. In Europe, did they do it for Keynesian reasons or did they do it to prop up Italy by buying all their dodgy government debt? You probably can't answer it. I'm not answering this, but I would like to also point another, uh, make another point. Uh, not only that the inflation sparks had been there already in 2018 when we were discussing uh, greening the economy and uh, when, you know, when we had supply chain issues already, even before COVID, before we had all those lockdowns and price, uh, the price uh, mechanisms had been you know, God had not functioned anymore, put it simply as it was. And so this was already the case in 2018 and nobody realized it. And then, you know, all the lagging behind, all of a sudden here is inflation. And then people thought, oh, it's transitory. Come on. No, it's not. Um, and and that's, that's a big issue now because after three external shocks or actually four external shocks, including the war, um, in Ukraine, then then you really have an issue and you can't price it in anymore. And, you know, reducing the balance sheets of the central bank slowly is only one thing, but it will take another time, uh, lots more time to balance it out and come back to the 2% threshold of inflation that we have kind of um, agreed on commonly. So uh, you mentioned the, the massive increase in the balance sheet. The latest figure I saw for the U.S. is something to the effect of an 88% increase in the monetary base just over COVID, right, which is staggeringly fast. It's nearly double. Uh, and so high inflation in, in that environment is frankly not surprising. Would you both agree? I would agree. But, but here's the challenge. People like us have been the boy who cried wolf because going all the way back to Obama stimulus, uh, the Fed has basically kept interest rates artificially low for a long time. And we've been saying, inflation's coming, inflation's coming. Well, 2013, 2014, 2015. Now, so there was an excuse. We weren't necessarily wrong because sometimes when you create excess liquidity, it goes into asset prices. It props up financial markets instead of going into higher consumer prices. But because people like us were saying, you know, the version of the British are coming and the British never came, uh, it did look like, well, were we wrong? No, we weren't wrong. It's just, it took a while for it to hit consumer prices because of that massive uh, expansion. W whether you measure the monetary base or whether you measure the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, they basically are a very similar measure. I like the balance sheet because it's so easy to measure. People argue all the time, well, what's the right definition of money anymore? Well, whatever. Look at the balance sheet, because that's obviously new liquidity being put in the system. So I've always preferred that measure. But, you know, as I said, we have I don't know that this is a may culpa as much as it's just monetary policy is not quite as cut and dried as we think. And it did take a long time for the for 1970s style inflation to come back, because that's what people thought when we were complaining about the Fed's policy 10 years ago. Well, one could also say that we probably have looked much closer into the boom and bust cycles that were described by Hayek and Mises in the 1920s. And then, you know, they also foresaw the, the, the busts that had happened uh, in the 70s and as oil crisis, dot-com bubble, etc. So that's just reality. That's, um, that will, that's a logic consequence of, 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 the, of what has happened. No, I agree. It's it's we are a bit of a the boy who cried wolf. We do have that problem. I think we've successfully predicted thirteen of the last three recessions, which is uh, always a fun statistic, right? Especially as economists, when we're always and, 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 and there are people on our side uh, you who say the end is coming because of all these entitlements and spending and debt. Well, in reality, we probably have at least twenty years, if not more, where we could continue down this path. Why? Because the U.S. is an international safe haven. France is going to blow up before the United States. 
Japan's going to blow up before the United States. Italy, as soon as the ECB stops propping up their government bond market, is going to blow up. So, so we, un, in some sense, being the world's reserve currency, which is a technical boring issue we don't need to get into here, we have a lot of time uh, before all our mistakes catch up to us, which in some sense is bad because it's usually only when there's a crisis that politicians act. Of course, Robert Higgs tells us when there's a crisis, politicians use that to make government bigger. So I don't know that we actually want the crisis. Uh, it just shows that we're... You well, know, how big do you want it to be? I'm... Yeah, no, the, the, the longer you wait to solve a problem, the bigger the crisis there will be, but then maybe the bigger the bad policy that will get enacted. It's true, very true. So I want to ask a, a separate question. Uh, so what, in your mind, is, is the real danger of, of public debt, right? It, clearly, it's, it's big. It's a big, scary number. Uh, you can go to you know, debtclock.com and see it grow every single second. Uh, but that's just a number on a screen. How does it affect everyday people, you know, as they're living, living, living their lives and going about their days. People becoming irresponsible, not understanding where money comes from, how to earn it, how to manage it, how to save it. And uh, that, I think, is, is the biggest danger if we just kick the can down the road on, for a while. We want individuals to think and act and make their own decisions and not rely on others, on, on handouts or on other people's decisions. I agree with Barbara that, that there really is a moral component to all this. A society where people think they can live off others and should live off others probably is heading in the wrong direction. But I want to say something uncharacteristically optimistic. If you go back to the end of World War II, our government debt had shot up to, I think, 116% of GDP. From 1945 until like, you know, 1970, we didn't reduce our government debt at all. It actually crept up a little bit in nominal terms. But government debt as a share of the economy, as a share of gross domestic product, fell dramatically. Think of it like you're a household. You're just out of college. Uh, you, know, you got some entry-level job and you have $20,000 of credit card debt. That's a major problem you have. On the other hand, you're 58. You're at the peak of your career. You owe $20,000 of credit card debt, but it's largely irrelevant to you. In other words, you do want to measure your government debt as a share of the economy. And so as long as you have your income growing faster than your debt, just like if your national income grows faster than your government spending and government spending falls as a share of GDP, that's progress. So it's not like we have to do something heroic. We simply have to make sure that we're vaguely halfway responsible so that we're letting the private sector grow faster than the government, either the spending burden or the debt burden. Uh, because as I said already, I care a lot more about government spending. Tax finance spending is bad. Monday printing finance spending is bad. And so is debt finance spending. I'll close with one other thing. This is good news, but bad news. Government debt as a share of GDP has actually fallen recently. Why? Because of inflation. Inflation reduces the value of all the outstanding government debt. So our government debt as a share of GDP, if you look at a chart, suddenly took a little plunge. But is it good that we're in effect stealing from bondholders by devaluing their existing assets? That's obviously not the right way to make progress uh, in terms of reducing government debt as a share of GDP. Yeah. There is also one other thing that you should look into. Being, as I mentioned before, being competitive and productive. I think we need our societies to reconsider that because otherwise the West will not look good in the future. Yeah, you know, Dan, you, you mentioned an important thing that I, I think is often misunderstood is there's a story behind all these numbers, you know, debt to GDP ratios. Those can fall and it's not necessarily for good reason. And so the important thing is, is to me is to understand why these things are falling and what's causing these things to go down. Same with unemployment rates, all these other you know, rates that we look at, uh, these changes, they can be good or bad up and down, you know, maybe not sideways, but uh, all kinds of directions can be good uh, or they can be bad. One thing that, that you mentioned is this idea of, of politics right? and, and what it, what's going on. And what I think is interesting is to point out that there have been periods in U.S. history where instead of government going into debt, they ran a surplus. In fact, they sent checks to every taxpayer saying, hey, sorry, 
we overtaxed you this year. Here's your money back, right? And it wasn't a tax refund like you as an individual overpaid. It was literally government revenues exceeded government spending that year. But lately, it seems like every single year, the, the accounting works out such that it is more spending than revenue, right? And that to me is, is an argument that it's not the case that this is merely a difficult problem. Because if it were a difficult problem, we'd see, you know, errors on both sides. Some years we would tax too little or spend too much or whichever way. Other years we'd run a surplus. Right? So if it was just difficult, there would be surplus years. And we haven't seen one in a while. And so I wonder if you two could comment on why is it the case that governments have a propensity, it seems, to tax too little and spend too much? They don't tax too little. They tax too much. Uh, so I have to disagree with that. Uh, uh, but yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I already cited, uh, paraphrased one Milton Friedman quote. Let me paraphrase another because I'm sure I won't have it right, uh, which is that governments will spend every single penny they collect and as much additional as they can get away with borrowing. Uh, so public choice tells us that politicians like to buy votes with other people's money, and, and that's what they generally do. Now, there are exceptions, as you indicated in your question. Uh, we had surpluses in 1980, 1998, 1999, and 2000. Why? Because after the 1994 election, there was a period where Republicans were actually good on spending and Bill Clinton was willing to triangulate. And so for a four-year period, government spending in nominal terms only grew by an average of 2.9% a year. Well, if your government spending is growing 2.9% a year and your nominal GDP, which of course is very much related to your nominal revenues, tax revenues, that's growing like 5 or 6% a year. So as you maintain that trend line for a while, guess what? You wind up with a budget surplus like we did in the, uh, in the, at the end of the 1990s. Likewise, after Obama's first blowout year when he had his fake stimulus, well, then we had the 2010 election. We got the Tea Party Republicans. And again, for a while, Republicans were good. Usually they get corrupted after a while, uh, like they are now. Uh, but after the 2010 elections, Republicans were very good, fought very hard. And what happened? We had a five-year nominal spending freeze between 2009 and 2014. What happened? We didn't get to a budget surplus, but the deficit fell by more than 50%. We made great progress, and if we had simply kept up some sort of limit on the growth of government spending, uh, we would have gotten good results. Uh, but it's all a function of how fast does government spending grow. By the way, you mentioned how data can sometimes be distorting and not be as optimistic as we think. Let me give an example of that, just a quick digression. Everyone focuses on the unemployment rate. Oh, look, the unemployment rate is low. That's good, but why is it low? It's low in part because our labor force participation rate has fallen. Two percentage points of our population that used to be working is no longer working, which of course means that for employers, there's sometimes a labor shortage, but more relevant as an economist, the problem is, is that that's 2% of our population that used to be contributing to GDP, and now they're not. So it's more important when you're focusing on having a bigger national income, greater average levels of prosperity, you want to focus on either the labor force participation rate or the employment population ratio, two different data sets by the Department of Labor, both of them in the long run are more important than the unemployment rate. Which means you're back to productivity, as simple as that. Yeah, it seems like productivity is the important thing and the consumption that comes from productivity is sort of the secondary you know, effect of these things. Uh, so I want to uh, ask another question. And, and before we open it up to Q&A from the audience, and I believe we have a, uh, do we have a microphone for the audience or are we all doing Slido from even the audience as well? Perfect. Okay. So if you have questions and you're in the audience, please, uh, by all means, use the Slido link uh, and send them in so that I can get them on my phone and, and ask our expert panelists these. Uh, but the question I, I want to sort of lead off with before we uh, dive into you know, the Q&A from everyone else, uh, while I have you and I get to ask you the questions I want to ask, uh, is to what extent do you think we can look at the effect of COVID on labor market participation. Do you think that uh, this is a transitory 2% decline? Do you think it's here for, uh, I don't want to say forever, but uh, is there something, because it seems weird that it's still low, you know, three years on or almost yeah, three years on almost now. 
it seems weird that it's still so low and that that is what's driving the low unemployment rates that we see. So is there something that, that we can do to maybe bring people back or is this just the new normal? Well, hopefully it's not the new normal, but what we have seen in Europe, uh, it, it is obviously the new normal and uh, people don't come home, uh, don't go back to, to their offices. They, they prefer home offices uh, where we know. And those people who have been productive continue to be productive there, but those who have not been productive beforehand are even less productive. At least this is what the studies show us. Plus, um, people just simply, as I mentioned before, with the so-called work-life balance, people simply prefer their 20-hour work. And uh, since they had been given all the handouts by the governments in the past years over those two and a half years of covid um, they still think, hey, we are entitled to those handouts. We don't need to work productively in a company or in an, in an enterprise or wherever. And there has been a huge change in mindset. And I think this is the big problem for us uh, because those changes in mindset have not happened in Asia and, our, uh, and other places in the world who we compete with. But we in Europe are com completely losing out on that front. And this labor productivity is totally down. Plus, in addition to that, we've seen uh, the, the, the wage price spiral coming up now. All the negotiations um, have been, the recent negotiations um, with the unions where we have had uh, labor, uh, where we have had uh, uh, rises in, in, um, in, uh, and in a salary of, of 7, 8, 9% just with one round. And this is sparking inflation even more so. So these are two big problems that we will face, at least in Europe, and I don't see an end to that. Um, plus, uh, as you already pointed out, uh, the population pyramid is upside down and there is a lack, uh, lack of young people joining the labor force in Europe. Those who are good will leave Europe to go to the Americas or Asia, uh, where they have better opportunities, unfortunately. And uh, that will be an issue in the future. Sorry to be so negative, but that's, these are facts. <clears throat> Let me add some negative news from America on this. Uh, there was a short run factor that hopefully is gonna be like a pig through a python and will have a long run effect, which is that a lot of older workers when COVID hit uh, instead of retiring, waiting till 66 to retire, some of them retired at 62. So, so there was a, there was a, seems to be a permanent, well, not permanent, but temporary uptick of early retirement among people that were sort of at that cutoff stage and they had enough assets that they figured, okay, I'll retire now. Why bother dealing with all this hassle? I hope that hasn't, isn't a long run trend. What might be a long run trend though, is I already mentioned labor force participation rate being key. Probably the most worrisome labor force participation number is that prime working age males. There, I think I, the last data I saw, it's down to 87% labor force participation. Now, what's driving that? COVID obviously acceler accelerated a little bit. It's bumping back up, but the long run trend is still down. Government benefit payments and various government programs make it possible for people not to work and be productive. And this gets to, you know, Barbara and I both been sort of touching on the fact that there's a moral component to this. You know, do you think it's okay not to work and live off other people? That, in some sense, is a very grave danger for our societies. And I suppose I should use this opportunity. Why do we keep talking about productivity? There are two factors of production. Labor and capital. Labor is us. Capital is the technology and ideas and equipment that we work with. If you want more national income, you obviously want labor to be efficiently allocated. You want workers to be productive, produce more for our work. Well, the more that government throws sand in the gears with regulation and trade barriers and things like that, and the more government lures people out of the labor force with uh, benefit payments and uh, uh, things like that. And the more government is overtaxing, saving and investing with dividend taxes, capital gains taxes, death taxes, corporate taxes. I mean, you literally can tax saving and investing as many as four different times on the same dollar of income in the United States. It's very hard to have a productive, dynamic economy when from every possible angle, government is punishing 
the things that enable us to become richer as a society. That's a great point. And one thing that I, I want to bring up is, and this comes from the audience as well. Uh, so we've seen, obviously, huge increases in productivity over generations. And even in the last decade, I would argue that productivity is up quite, quite a bit. Uh, we've seen increased autom automation as well. So with this, and you combine sort of this decreased labor force participation rate, uh, do you think something like a universal basic income is inevitable, necessary, or just not good policy? Not good policy. Okay. <laughs> I also think it's bad policy because the, the, the theory from the advocates is that if everyone gets you know, a lot of money from the government, well, they'll then be able to focus on what they really want to do. They won't have underlying financial anxiety and they'll go out, they'll still work because, you know, they'll want to be fulfilled. Well, I worry, as we just said, that some people think it's perfectly okay not to be fulfilled. Uh, I remember going to Switzerland back and I think it was, what, 2015 when they had that referendum on the basic income. Uh, and this was like incredibly generous, like $27,000 uh, for a, for a two-person household. Uh, and, uh, and I spoke at a conference against it. It then got defeated by, I think, 78% of the voters. So I, I take credit for that. Uh, I, I doubt I, the Swiss are people. Please. I, I doubt I affected a single vote, but I was I was glad that they defeated it after I spoke at that conference about why it would be a bad idea. Uh, I, I just what was the big lesson we learned from Bill Clinton's welfare reform? If we make it harder to be dependent on government, labor force participation will increase. And oh, by the way, contrary to what Moynihan and other defenders of the old system said. Child poverty went down, not up. In other words, welfare reform was a success from a left-wing perspective as well as, a, as well as from a market-friendly perspective. One little example from Germany. Uh, you might recall the Social Democrat Chancellor Schröder. He did the so-called Hartz IV reforms, which were labor market reforms and were against all the handouts. Um, and, you know, the, he literally kept them. He knew when he did that, he will never be elected to, to office again. He took the risk, saved the German economy by that, and Merkel could do whatever she did in the, in the following years and uh, was riding on the success wave that he had built on because he literally cut those fails and wrong incentives. So I want to push back on the, the negativity of the UBI just to play devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, it's often been proposed as an alternative to current welfare spending and say, you know, we could cut or eliminate all welfare programs and in, instead replace it with this universal basic income. Uh, but this leads to questions of how feasible is it that these cuts to the responsibility, to bring it back to where we were talking earlier, uh, cutting the responsibility of the beast, uh, how feasible is it to think that those will last? Well, to give an example, uh, Milton Friedman said things that vaguely could be considered sympathetic to universal basic income, and Charles Burry, who unquestionably is a market-friendly libertarian, he is an explicit advocate of universal basic income. But this is where I think public choice comes in. Does anybody actually think if a new universal handout is enacted that politicians will get rid of the hundreds of other redistribution programs that are out there? Are they really going to get rid of housing subsidies and food stamps and disability and all these other things? No, they will add it on top of the current system. So the theory, I understand it. It had my former colleague at the Cato Institute, Michael Tanner. He's much more sympathetic to UBI than I was. So yes, there is a logic to it. But as I would always tell Michael, I don't trust politicians. And the Swiss voters obviously didn't trust that it would work well either. Plus, there is also one additional thing um, it will not remain at the same level. It will always grow and grow as taxes always grow because we don't, we, this is why we argue for tax competition in order to reduce the taxes and not to raise them. And if you have a, a universal basic income, you will end up in the same way. It will grow and grow and grow and disincentivize work and any productivity at all. Excellent. So I want to take advantage of the fact that we have uh, Dr. Coleman on the panel and ask a question from the audience as well. Uh, what are the downsides to not bailing out a bank like the Silicon Valley Bank uh, versus uh, bailing them out or not bailing them out? Or are there upsides to not bailing them out? Well, you know, in Europe, we have bailed out banks as of recent, um, at least in the, after the so-called 
a big financial crisis that hit us in Europe as a sovereign debt crisis and not as a banking crisis and uh, in, in 2008. Um, my personal argument, and I have to be very careful, right. we're still in the quiet period, so this is why I'm, I, I'm, I try to be very uh, diplomatic on that. I do not argue for bailouts of, of banks, and I don't think it's a good idea. It's rather looking beforehand at the regulatory issues, looking at the oversight, seeing if there have been problems in oversight or overseeing the banks, and then you can uh, then you make the decisions. And that I would I would stop at that point now, uh, but I think it was pretty clear. Let me add something on that. Uh, there are different types of bailouts. One of the reasons I thought TARP was such a disgusting piece of legislation is that we didn't just bail out depositors. We bailed out entire financial institutions, which meant bailing out the shareholders and the bondholders and the executives of these institutions. The good news, so to speak, relatively speaking, about Silicon Valley Bank is that those people were hurt. The depositors were protected above and beyond the $250,000 limit on deposit insurance. So you can complain about that, and I would complain about that. But at least some people who touch the hot stove burn their fingers. There's a famous, I don't know who said it, but there's a famous line, capitalism without bankruptcy is like religion without hell. You want, you want a dynamic economy where there is bankruptcy, where entrepreneurs can create new goods and services that displace and, and in effect drive out of business uh, the, the old way of doing things. That's what gives us this greater level of productivity that we've been talking about. If you do bailouts, and, and this is what worries me, is you probably know this more than I do. It sounds like this UBS takeover of Credit Suisse is the wrong kind of bailout. Uh, now, you can't comment on that because of your role as a central banker, uh, and, and I'm not enough of an expert on it, but I worry it's, it smells to me what I've read in the newspapers. That's like a TARP bailout, which means that everyone at Credit Suisse uh, gets to keep their jobs. Now, I did read that some of the bondholders get hurt, so hopefully it might be more like Silicon Valley Bank but, but here's the one thing that's greatly unfair. And as uh, Senator Langford of Oklahoma hit Janet Yellen about this at a recent congressional hearing, you're bailing out Silicon Valley Bank, at least at all the depositors, including all their deposits above $250,000, because you have arbitrarily decided, probably on the basis of political uh, connections, that it's systemically important. And he asked, what about a small community bank in Oklahoma? Will they get that treatment? I'm a big believer in the rule of law. Whatever the rules are, they should apply equally to everyone. And clearly, having this cronious system where if you have a bunch of uh, Silicon Valley people who have the direct lines to their members of Congress, bailing them out but not bailing out a small community bank, that bothers me economically as, a, as an economist, but it bothers me as a human being because I don't think little people should be treated worse than big people. So we have about two and a half minutes left. And what I want to do with the last question for the day is, is ask, you know, since we've had a lot of doom and gloom today, what piece of news or what reforms or what is it that gives you the most hope about the next 5, 10, 20 years that you see uh, in your field today? You start. I, I, I was going to hope you would start. So I had time to think of what can I be optimistic about? Okay, let me say something optimistic. It's not optimistic for this year or next year. But if you go back 10 years ago, Republicans in Congress actually were voting for and supporting genuine good entitlement reform, block granting of Medicaid, building upon Bill Clinton's welfare reform, and shifting Medicare into a premium support system, sort of akin to what federal employees have for their health insurance. Those reforms would have saved over decades trillions of dollars and sort of taken that long-run trend line of government spending and knocked it down a couple of notches. Government still would have grown, but there was a chance with these entitlement reforms, it would have grown slower than the private sector. And that long-run trend line, is government growing faster or is the private sector growing faster? That is the key challenge. We want to make sure government doesn't consume more and more and a greater and greater share of our economic output. And, and Republicans in the, in the recent memory were willing to be good on entitlement reform. They sort of forgot all that because Trump was a big government populist. But maybe in 2024, Republicans will get their legs back under them again. 
and be willing to do the right thing for the right reason in the genuine and proper sense of what patriotism should be. Besides those political things that you mentioned, uh, there is plenty of young people now start um, looking at what Austrian economics can tell us, that there are institutions like ACNA Institute and many others that we collaborate with uh, that educate the next generation, that make them curious to ask the right questions and also to take up responsibility. And I think this is what makes me positive. And after all, uh, Schumpeter also was an Austrian, and I think we believe in, in new ideas, new solutions for everything that we have. So that's, I think, what I would add to what Dan had said. Well, thank you both so much. And I want to thank everyone in the audience, both online and in person, for attending today's event. I want to thank the Acton Institute for hosting it, the Free Market Roadshow, and my two panelists. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.